One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. You're listening to the Out of Sanctum podcast. Here is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. I've got a trick for you to open the show. This is courtesy of my four-year-old. Put your hand up if you don't want to put your hand up. (laughs) (laughs) No hands. Oh, Alicia's hands. Oh, she's not sure. (laughs) Welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week. I'm Emma Race. I'm Lucy Race. I'm Nicole Hayes. I'm uh, (laughs) Kate Sear. And I've got a cold. Alicia, sometimes here. How are you? Well, it's lovely to see you. Um, So the week that was of those games, do you know what occurred to me? Is that when GWS play Sydney, it's the battle for the bridge. Should it have been the battle for the buddy? Because do you remember he was meant to go to GWS? He ended up going to Sydney. And Mm. maybe they should play and whoever wins gets to keep him. Oh, Oh, but I want a bit bit of that. I think we should, everyone should get a go, buddy. Don't you think? Do we so have to play we football? Might have to do like a whole or could we play Uno? <laughs> Uno for Buddy. God, I love Uno. Oh, so do I. I love it too. Do you play that you can put a draw four on a draw four? Oh, yeah, sometimes. Oh, you change the rules. Yeah, it depends who you play with because some people are really insistent that yeah. you can't do certain things. Yeah, mm. I'd like to hear what people think about that. Um, so the games <laughs> were stinkers apart from one, but I actually love finals football, so I don't care if they're stinkers. I think everything has a story. How did you guys find it? Anyone? Oh well, no, I I agree. You know my thoughts. Like I watched all of the games, and I, we went to some VFLW as well, which was interesting. I watched some VFL. Um, I thought all of the games were pretty ordinary, except for the West Coast Collingwood game, which was fantastic, oh, absolutely sensational game of football. But Sydney and Geelong, particularly, very shocking very news. disappointing. Mm. Shocking. Mm, I mean, in a com- I'm going to do something that I would pick up in commentary watch normally, but. They didn't turn up. Oh. Oh. Oh, my gosh. So it, we are desperate if we're going to actually <laughs> resort to cliches. Someone like else's that, podcast yeah. will commentary watch you on that. Thank you. <laughs> please please do. It would be an honour. Media watch. Are you listening? <laughs> um, yes, it felt, um, it felt like it didn't quite fire. Having said that, I always think if you're, if you're someone who's interested in, in uh, finals football, don't wait till the grand final to get involved. No. Watch mm. these games because these games are often the very mm. best games. I always feel like round one of the finals is a little bit like the sorting hat though. <laughs> so like a few people just get straight off to Slytherin or Hufflepuff or whichever one. Hufflepuff. No one's in Hufflepuff. <laughs> Hufflepuff's one just the worst. Can we, no. can we one day um, throw out some names of some footballers and we all have to decide which house yeah, they're sure. in? Um, yeah, do we yeah. all know what houses we're in? Yeah. Oh, I'm in Gryffindor. Yeah, I'm Gryffindor. Yeah, I'm Gryffindor. I'm probably, yeah. To be fair, <laughs> I'm probably Have you actually checked that? Because I thought I was Gryffindor and it turned out that I am actually... Slytherin. What do you mean when Where you say you... I've checked it? Is it scientific? There's actual things. Where's oh, the right? online? Um, 
It is um, on the on the Harry Potter side, and you can actually find out. And it asks you questions. Don't shake your head at me, Alicia. Sometimes it's real and it's science. Do you remember when we did the Muppet quiz and you were animal? And that is so Alicia was animal, and Lucy was Miss Piggy, and I was Kermit. I know what (laughs) I know what West Wing character I am, but I don't know West Wing. I I think it was CJ, but oh, oh, sorry, Aspera. Delusions of grandeur. That's right. Can we just can we out you as being on Einstein Factor? I remember when I saw you on Einstein. Factor and West Wing was your topic, yes. and I was like, I love her so hard right now. <laughs> oh my god, that you knew the, so much. The first episode, I just absolutely blitzed it, got every question right. And the second time, I was against a Doctor Who fan who just leaned oh. in before we started, and he goes, "What do you really know about the West Wing?" And it just threw me. It just oh. threw me. Oh, a bit of trash a bit of trash talking, talking from Doctor Who. A bit of sledging, <laughs> and he was lovely, but it just threw me, and I was like, uh. What on was every that show night? again, who wrote it again? So, Unbelievable. I did not so, know this about you, Alicia. Obviously, Alicia's been on the Einstein Factor. Emma's won the showcase mm-hmm. on the prices. Lucy's right. also not won the showcase. On the who else true. has been on? Have any of you been on a game show? Has everyone been I on a game show? I have not here? been on a game show, and I feel a little left out here. I was okay. on it because I thing? ran down. At I the know end. that's true. That's she true. came on down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry. Yes. We, we, we will get back Football. to, I mean, I know it's Football. breaking news. We will get back to you with which um, houses from Harry Potter all of us are in. Um, if I get Hufflepuff, I'm not turning up next week. I'm just saying that. They are um, so underrated. So you were going to say something about the football, Lucy, or have you lost your train of thought? About the preview? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why don't you give us a preview? A preview. So Hawthorne's going to play Melbourne yep. and GWS is going to play Collingwood. Last week he gave us a little preview that was very bespoke and lovely and also spot on yeah so who knew who knew that you could like work out who's going to win by going back to old movies so why don't we try it again now the story (laughs) of Hawthorne and Melbourne I don't know why this isn't being billed as the merger cup Mm, because you will remember that Hawthorne and Melbourne nearly merged and our own Felicity race voted for it I was going to say hello to Felicity listening at home um so if we're going to have a look at this game, I think we should have a look at it through the prism of the wedding planner. <laughs> I can see In that. this movie, J-Lo has many times been the bride's BFF, but never been the bride. For convenience and to really to satisfy the oldies in her life so that they can see her married before they die, which is kind of like members seeing a grand final before they shuffle off. <laughs> J-Lo agrees to marry Massimo. Neither of them feel like it's a perfect match. It's been arranged, kind of like the Hawks and the D's when they nearly merged. But they can't see any other way to tick all the boxes for all the other stakeholders. In this scenario, Don Scott is J-Lo's dad. Mm. (laughs) And that is very scary. Mm. Matthew McConaughey is the promise of a life lived as her true self. And while this goes some way to preview the match, I actually have no idea who wins. <laughs> Except to say that both Melbourne and Hawthorne hold their own self-determination and they need that to be able to attack this game and do the best they can. Mm. And can I say, Lucy, that while we were thinking about the Merger Cup this week, I stumbled upon the um, proposed theme song of Melbourne oh. and Hawthorne, Had They Have Merged. Ooh. Were they going to be called the Dorks? Yeah, the Melbourne Dorks. <laughs> the Melbourne, Melbourne Dorks. Yeah. They should have been. Yeah. Uh, and here's a little snippet of that truly atrocious song. Oh, 
Oh my god! Thank yes. God we were spared that. <laughs> I'm still stuck on the wedding planner and thinking okay. about Alex yeah. from uh, Grey's Anatomy doing a really bad Italian accent in that yes, movie. Yes, yes, exactly. True. All right. Well, let's stick with the wedding theme to understand what's going to happen when GWS play the pies, and have a think about my best friend's wedding. In this scenario, Julia Roberts is Collingwood. Slightly annoying, but with so much history, you just assume that she's going to beat Cameron Diaz, the young, naive, focus group girlfriend. (laughs) Ultimately, they all win, but GWS slash Cameron Diaz wins on the scoreboard, so it's GWS. You know, originally in that movie, uh, Julia Roberts was going to get the guy, but people... They, they They hated it. Well, yeah. see, that might happen. <laughs> that might <laughs> happen this word. week. So, yeah. if Collingwood win, we will know that the audience has spoken. One other thing that might happen this week, or that one of you suggested would, they would like to see happen this week, is that when the team announcements come out as a surprise, Hawthorne announces Cyril Rioli. <laughs> so oh, can you and, imagine? Oh, God, wouldn't it be amazing? It would be surprising too. But it got me thinking about how wonderful it would be if um, for the teams, for the four teams that are playing, if they could pick any past player from history Mm. from their club to play. And I would love our listeners to join in and and tell us, tweet us, Facebookers, tell us who they would pick if they could pick any player from history from these four clubs. Um, This is who I think if I were if it were up to me, who I would pick if I were in charge. So for Hawthorne, I would pick Cyril, obviously. Mm. Not Don Scott. Not, not <laughs> hang on, a legitimate question. Not Peter Hudson, who has form in being no. helicoptered in, so no. he knows what to do when he when that helicopter lands. No. We've got some full really? forwards. We We've need got a big some tall forwards. dude who kicks goals. No, no I'm, I'm happy with my choice. Yeah. Um, for Melbourne, I think Melbourne. I would pick the late great Jim Steins because imagine Steins and Gorn in a ruck oh, combination. Wow. Wouldn't that Stop be amazing? It. Some occasionally mm. one of them dropping back forward and. Uh, that would be back incredible back to forward. watch. Commentary watch. <laughs> commentary watch. Keep going. Current <laughs> former player, Max Gorn. Um, Collingwood. If it were Collingwood, I would pick the great Peter Dacos. Dacos. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Imagine him alongside Mason Cox in the forward mm. line. Mm. Unstoppable. And for GWS, of course, you couldn't go past Israel Folau. <laughs> <laughs> Going deep into their oh, history. He's oh, a Hufflepuff. That's hilarious. Yeah, that is the history. Yeah. I yeah. love it. Thanks. I also got a bit retrospective this week. I saw something I think you posted, Alicia, maybe. It was um, something that Catherine Devaney had written um, a long time ago about how you know you're from Melbourne or you're from Melbourne when. And I thought, we don't do enough of them about football because when September hits and the blossom comes out, mm. you know, most people in the world would go like, oh, wow, isn't this amazing? The four seasons are so beautiful. The blossom, well, I should go to a garden show or whatever the hell they would <laughs> no. say. I'm like this, the blossom's out. It's September. It's time <laughs> for finals. And that's all it, yeah, all, all it means to me. About. So I've written this for you. Join in if you want to play along. <laughs> you know you're an old school footy fan when I say hot pies, you say cold drinks. <laughs> <laughs> I say jizzlinko, you say... You beauty! (laughs) When you have a story about losing your car at Waverley, when you stick your scarf out the window on the way home, if you ever yelled, do a handstand, Jacko, (laughs) that you were there, but probably you weren't there, when the scoreboard set on fire, when the lights went out at Waverley and when Lethal broke the point post. The sprinklers came on. Yes, that too. That you um, happily give way to cars that have your team's sticker on the bumper bar. If you wore your jumper to school on Monday after the oh, win, yes. 
if you've taken a specky or mimed taking a specky on your unsuspecting partner's back in the supermarket, <laughs> the mention of meatloaf is a slippery slope to mentions of Angry Anderson and the Batmobile. If you secretly think that winning the toss is a good omen and that if you win the toss, you cheer really loudly for it as if you've just kicked a goal, that you can recall the announcer reading out someone's number plate and telling them that they left their lights on oh, in the yes. And that you can almost just remember the sound of the xylophone that would announce the heralding of that announcement. Do you remember that? And wondering, did someone play the xylophone every time or was that recorded and they just press play? Um, that, it's like Greece. Yeah. And, yeah, it is like Greece. And if you ever chopped up the yellow pages to throw tiny yellow squares mm. after a I goal. I never did that. Did you guys no, do it? No, Mum and Dad didn't let us we do it. I, I, not only did I do it, I was involved in the actual smuggling in of very large um, floggers full of yellow paper for the 83 grand final. How do you smuggle it in? Do you pretend you have bigger they boobs? They had them wrapped or? in the... We, oh, God, inside uh, the I'm giving it away, yeah. No, we had them wrapped in the floggers, so they had big garbage bags <gasps> over them and inside, and so you'd be... Carrying it, like pretending it wasn't as heavy as it was. This is a real thing. Can I say, I think a lot of our younger listeners will be on the World Wide Web, the information superhighway, (laughs) madly Googling terms like floggers and also yellow pages. Imagine them going, how do you chop up a web page (laughs) and take that for a goal square celebration? I think think the key is if you remember having your membership card oh, clicked, clicked, clicked yes. with a hole punch, yes. Yes. you should know what oh, we're talking about. And the Kellogg's, the footy show, uh, sorry, what was it called? World of Sport. They had the, the the kids' footy show where you had the Kellogg's membership. Yes. And you got five games. Five free games. And it was $5. No I way. Yes. I missed out on that. Oh, Remember I totally also know. when you used to get to walk down to Waverley, I reckon you would have done this, Alicia, I did, and go in when they let the gates open um, during the match when you couldn't afford to pay. Yes. When I was yeah. a uni student, wow. I used to do that Do it too. all the time. Half yeah. time. Wow. Well, anyway, we would love to hear yours as well. You know you're a footy fan when send us one of them if you like. We'll put these ones on Twitter and you can join in the conversation. I feel like someone, when I say that, join in the conversation. Um, I think that's that my Mr. Fain says. says that actually. John Fain, John's yeah. say. I'm not Mr. Fain. Fain. I'm sorry. Excuse Mr. Fain. Me. When, when are we first name basis? <laughs> since, since he was next door. Right. Okay, some stuff happened, ladies. The podcast doesn't quit, does it? Because no. there's always going to be people like blah, 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 saying the things that we have to respond to. <laughs> so let's roll up our sleeves if you're wearing them and let's talk about Serena Williams, ladies. Um, this has the, the Serena Williams on court um, situation has now gone off court and into the pages of the Herald Sun and Mark Knight's cartoon has taken the story in a whole other direction. So let's break it down by talking about Serena's on-court situation. I'd love to hear what all of you thought because I've been surprised by people who um, have a really different opinion to me and it's the most, I can't think of a more nuanced news story. I've been surprised by people who I always thought that I had a really close alignment of kind of the way we dissect news stories and they have taken a very counter view to the view that I have. When I first saw it, I thought, yeah, bad behaviour. Um, we see that in tennis all the time and we've seen that with Serena all the time and she feels um, compelled to 
yell. I, I remember being horrified at the way she spoke to a lion's person one time. Um, but what I was trying, what I looked at, and the first thing that occurred to me was the perfect storm in which placed her on that court and that um, she has grown bigger than the game. Her story has grown bigger than the game. And But there will be people that disagree with me about the fact that someone can be bigger than the game. But in the lead up to her playing in that match... And you think about, put yourself in that person's shoes when, you know, you think about when you've had a day when people have been wearing you down and they've, the kids have asked for, you know, not a pink cup, a blue cup and someone, and then you've gone to the photocopier and there's no ink in it. And then you, you know, you times that by a zillion on a global kind of platform like Serena's and you think about how in the days leading up to her playing in that match, Nike had come out with their ad for Colin Kaepernick, but she also had an ad too Mm -hmm. where she was supported by this global brand to say this is someone who stands out and who speaks out and who is put down often and we are going to stand by her. So she would have felt empowered by that. She was also in the wake of Kaepernick's ad having to endure her president speaking some stuff that would have been perceived, I believe, by her as really racist and um, crit- and criticising people of colour and that her husband had um, posted and given gifted her a video about what it had taken for her to get back to that journey, onto, back onto the tennis court and the journey through almost losing their child and which, uh, losing her life in delivering their child, which I have read this week she had been really vocal about um, the pain that she was in and she was not listened to um, in that situation and that caused it to be even more dire than it was. That, you know, we don't have to... I've seen an article that tracks back through the back catalogue of Serena Williams and just a couple of things that I pulled out of there that... You can, I, I cannot comprehend what this tapestry of um, facts would make up your life, you know, how this would change the way that you feel about yourself. But the fact that she had to endure, as we all did, seeing the Tiki Torch Army in Charlottesville, which is the political climate of the time and of the, of the country that she plays for and that she lives in, um, the fact that she's constantly been told that she's too big, too black, too dark, too loud, too athletic, you know, Mm, mm. the fact that at seven and eight years of age, Venus and Serena were routinely racially abused at the tennis courts by children and adults, Um, by the fact that let's never lose sight of the fact that her sister, her sister innocently, her innocent sister died in a drive-by shooting. mm. So, you know, I think about a lifetime of things that get her to this point and she's now the mother of a child and she tried to express that on the court and there's been criticism about that too, but that she's fueled by an inner fire now, she's got a platform and she's not afraid to use it and mm. she wants to speak out and she saw a gross injustice happening to her in a sporting sense and I think that was what we saw, the explosion of that. Now, the thing that's frustrated me enormously is that I have tried to look at this with empathy and I've tried to holistically try and understand where she's come from, but I haven't seen the same from a lot of people who have routinely said it wasn't racist, it wasn't sexist, it was just the lines, that was just the chair umpire. I don't feel at all equipped to say what is racist mm. Or what is sexist? And I know I'm not a woman of colour, but I certainly 
can't hold up things and say, I definitively know that that wasn't sexist and I haven't lived my life as a tennis player, so I don't know what the nuance is there. And, mm. you know, a lot of um, a lot of male tennis players have come out, like Andy Roddick and Novak Djokovic, and they've said, I've said things much worse than that and not been sanctioned. Mm. So I think it was a perfect storm and I don't think it's the last time that we'll see her explode like that on the court or otherwise. Lucy? I am... Um I think you say like you raised some really good points, Emma. And um, when I think about it, I'm really ch- I am really challenged in the first instance because we value sportsmanship really highly, and some of the behaviour I saw from Serena on court is not the sort of thing I want to see because I know the power of an image of Serena smashing a racket or yelling at a umpire. What power that has over the next generation of um, athletes, but also on people broadly. But I really liked it, and I'm referring to a tweet by Russell Jackson, who um, is a friend of the pod, and he made a really good point that when you're considering what happened in that final, you need to consider race, you need to consider gender, you need to consider how that intersects with sport, and you also need to consider the Grand Slam rules before you come out with your take. And I think... Like so many things, it's really important to consider where something sits in the middle of a story. And I come down on the fact that you can hold you can hold two thoughts in your head at the same time. That you can think, was her behaviour inappropriate? Yes. Was her behaviour understandable? Yes. And that's where I, I sit on it. And I guess for me, at the most, Serena is guilty of an imperfect expression of righteous anger. And haven't we all done that when you're in the middle of something and it's something you feel really strongly about and you might be arguing quite well and then you cross over and swear or, you know, get personal get personal, mm. and that undermines everything else that you're saying. Mm. Alicia? I think also adding to what you're saying, Emma, that uh, she was told what to wear just yes. recently. She's got that on the, the back. The context of the racism and sexism is huge. And I think you said it beautifully, Lucy, that it was just that nuanced and layered. And I just can't believe that uh, people have come out of it just saying unequivocally, mm. can I make that up, mm. um, that she has done the wrong thing and it bears no uh, no understanding of race and sexism. And just the fact that this, which we'll get into now, this Mark Knight cartoon could not be more racist and it doesn't matter what the intent was of this uh, illustrator, that the fact that when someone of colour says this is racist and, geez, everyone else uh, who isn't still sees it as racist, um, how you can say to someone, no, sorry, I'm not listening to you, doesn't matter what your history is, doesn't matter what you think, I think it's fine and I'm going to double down on that. So just I just want to, yeah, the whole notion of nuance is really missing in this whole conversation, sadly, and context, as you said, Lucy. Um, And I think what we, you know, to quote Julia Gillard, we can't forget that the message is valid and there's no question that there's a, a problem of entrenched and systemic sexism. Well, in the world, but certainly, you know, in tennis as well. Um, and what Julie Gillard told us after she resigned or after she left Parliament was, it doesn't explain everything. It doesn't explain nothing. It does explain some things. And I <laughs> and I think that we have to keep remembering that it's not ever going to be a simple yes or no solution. And 
how we find space for that in in the social media world, nuance and complex ideas. Um, I'm not really sure. Well, we feel I feel like we're a long way from there right now. But, um, you know, that is something I I think if we can just approach these ideas rather than with the notion of trying to be right or to uh, have an opinion, but to approach it with this desire to understand. And do you if we think, sorry, do you think that think situations like this will propel that, that forward? I always think it will, but then it doesn't because yeah. then we're back here again, aren't we? But the, the only other thing I wanted to say is that it's sort of a bit more of a general point about this idea that our heroes have to be saints as well, mm-hmm. that we expect perfection from them in a way that, well, it's designed to fail, isn't it? Nobody is going to do that. So that you can have um, an imperfect, as you said, Lucy, but a person who isn't, they they cannot always get it right and they cannot always be this idealised notion of themselves. Um, That doesn't counter the fact that years and years of, you know, if you think about what she represents to people of colour as well as girls and women um, around the world, what she has accomplished in her extraordinary life that you pointed to, Em, you know, I, I think we can say this about a lot of our iconic sort of current, particularly in the feminist space, women who have been torn down really quickly because of something, that moment when they didn't live up to expectations. And the I think mother, it's unfair of us. The mother of all tantrums. That's what was said about her. Yeah, yeah. Um, the mother of all tantrums. It wasn't a good tantrums. look. I don't think anyone can pretend it was a good look. But, yes, context, understanding. God, when was the last time she had a good night's sleep? She's got a baby, seriously. <laughs> like, bring it down to the basics. Yeah. And if we can just aim to kind of bring all of our desire for understanding to these conversations, I think maybe that that's something we have to work for. When you first saw the Mark Knight cartoon... What was your first reaction, Kate Sia? Ah, uh, disgust. I thought it was unacceptable and 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 un- just unnecessary as well on on several levels. Um, unfortunately, Mark Knight has a history, especially in recent times, of having produced a number of controversial car- cartoons, particularly about um, uh, particularly dealing with race. And so, <clears throat> I think that's unfortunate. But yeah, I just wanted to focus on and say a little bit about the cartoon because. That is certainly where the debate has gone in recent days. Um, And the focus, I think, has very much been on intentionality and knowledge. And what I mean by that is that there's been this kind of ongoing debate about what Mark Knight intended to do with that cartoon and how much he knew. So he says he didn't intend to invoke racist or sexist stereotypes. And his critics have said, well, he he can't have not known that um, particularly the way that he portrayed Serena Williams kind of signalled offensive racist caricatures and the Sambo image and stuff from the Jim Crow era and that if he didn't know about the history of that, he should have so that, you know, kind of ignorance was no excuse. And that debate to me kind of misses the mark in my mind because in focusing on his state of mind, either what he intended or what he knew, I think the debate really quickly skips over a much more important question And that is, or an important issue, and that is that sometimes even if you don't intend harm or you don't know that something is harmful, it's still possible for you to use an image or to use a term that signifies or invokes an historically offensive stereotype. And what I mean by that, in other words, is that a cartoon might still do something by reiterating or reinforcing a harmful stereotype, even if its creator does do so unwittingly. 
And so it'll surprise no one that I want to quote Judith Butler here, (laughs) who's a feminist and queer philosopher, but she really shapes my thinking on these issues. And I think her words um, really resonated with me this week. So she's written a lot about something that she calls performativity. This is a kind of academic concept that she is um, most closely associated with. And what it argues in essence is that identity has no inherent essence beyond repetition. And so this is what she says, and I'll quote here, when she talks about this idea of performativity, that performativity must be understood not as a singular or deliberate act, but rather as the reiterative and citational practice by which discourse produces the effects that it names. And she then goes on to say this, that the historicity of norms, the chains of iteration invoked, and dissimulated in the imperative utterance constitute the power of discourse to enact what it names. Now, I know that's quite complex, um, but what she's talking about there is the idea that some things are made simply through the process of repetition. The act of repeating makes um, the thing. And I think as a community, we're too often focused or fixated on intentionality when it would be more helpful to focus on repetition and that I think we would be able to have a much more civil and empathetic discussion about these issues if we could focus on what an image does or what effects flow from the process of repetition whether we know about those effects or understand them or not and there's a parallel in my mind here between this stuff about Serena Williams and what happened with Adam Goods when he called out Mm. that young girl in the audience who had called him an ape all those years ago and at the time Adam Goods said look she's innocent and he didn't blame her He said she doesn't understand what that term means, but it still does something. Mm. And he wanted her and the rest of society to understand the doing of the repetition of the word. And he said, and I'll quote here, we've just got to help educate society better so it doesn't happen again. And and even if he didn't mean to, in my mind, Adam Goods was invoking Mm. that kind of Judith Butler idea. And so the point is really that images and depictions have effects and they need not always be accompanied by a deliberate intent to harm. If the focus isn't on intention, there's a small possibility that those who engage in harmful acts might be less resistant and less defensive, and we might be able to hear and really listen Mm. to affected communities more, and that I think that is a vital step to a more generous and caring and open community. Really good points, Kate. And you know, when, when you're thinking about cartoons, you know, some of the discourse that I've seen is that cartoons are funny and so it doesn't matter and or that, you know, they're used to ridicule everyone so just get over it. I think it's important to really think about image and that repetition of image because cartoons are a visual language and I am really grateful for a Twitter thread that I read from Kara Schlegel yesterday who broke it down beautifully and I'm just going to borrow from what she said in, in talking about why this cartoon was racist. So there's a long history of cartoons which depict race via essentialism, which means using specific characteristics to depict particular races. And in doing this, the cartoonist reduces people to a stereotype while also erasing their individual and individuality and identity. One of the historical uses of caricature or cartoons 
was to ridicule people and in doing so to enforce social hierarchies. So in the US, we saw that through the Jim Crow era in terms of making sure that African-American people were um, told that they were at the bottom of the social hierarchy. And in Australia, we have a long history of doing the same thing with Aboriginal people and through cartoons, which we all would have studied and, and seen in history. All of the history that goes around that is drawn on when we see a when we see a cartoon. It's basically part of the visual language of the medium. So, of course, the weight of racist or sexist tropes is conjured up when we see these images. Now, in the words of Kara, the cartoon of Serena, and I quote here, she says, "Is textbook essentialist caricature, embellishing characteristics that have nothing to do with Serena Williams, mm. drawing from histories of black women depicted as enormous, violent, ugly, and stupid, erasing her identity." Add to that the depiction of Naomi Osaka, which Denise Clay from the National Association of Black Journalists um, pointed out. She's shown as being a petite blonde with light skin tone, erasing both her Japanese and her Haitian heritage. And both Asaka and Ramos are depicted as calm and rational and white. So where does this leave us in terms of particularly, you know, I guess in, in Australia, but also bringing it back to football? Um, again, like we say it so many times, but it's so important to listen and learn. So when someone's telling you, as you said, Alicia, when someone's telling you that something is racist or sexist, unless you've walked miles in those shoes and lived under the weight of that particular history, you need to understand that you're probably seeing things through your lens. Mark Knight was interviewed on 3AW yesterday and in response to the big global backlash, he said, I've tried to reply to these people, but they don't listen. (laughs) (laughs) Which was a rich irony. (laughs) Um, And, you know, as Kate said, you know, Mark has form here. The... Some of the cartoons that we've seen recently have also drawn on this these particular um, racial mm-hmm. stereotypes. Mark Knight's part of our football landscape mm. via yeah. the cartoons he does for the premiers. Now, we've been contacted this week by a number of listeners who said, I will not be buying a premiership poster. And I've yep. seen people on Twitter calling for the AFL to um, disassociate from him. The lens through which Mark Knight sees the world is evident in his work and the weight of that inevitably is going to seep into the work that he does that's associated with the AFL. That is a code that strongly rejects racism and I don't think the two of them can sit side by side anymore. Do you remember when the Premiership post came up for the Adelaide Crows? Yes. And we were doing this podcast and, yeah, it had breasts and lipstick Mm. on. And you were really offended by that, Nicole. Yeah, I was. I was really offended by it. And I think the idea that just because they're supposed to be lighthearted makes them somehow benign is delusional. Um, If you look, as you mentioned, through, um, Lucy, through history – Posters and and cartoon have been used as propaganda mm. for uh, you know in warring countries. It was notorious through the um, the Hitler Germany in terms of um, dehumanizing Jews. It's been used as a way to dehumanize Germans when they you know the Nazis when there were um, you know uh, calls for recruitment. It's a very powerful tool. It's used you know, as a campaign because it has an effect. And the notion that this is somehow benign and has no harm because it's meant to be funny is not 
is just disingenuous. And do we lay blame now on the Herald Sun who've doubled down and put his cartoons on the front just to say, here you go, PC gone mad. And also just think about this, and this is the last thing I'll say about it, but if you have a friend, and this is a smaller version of this, but if you have a friend who said, you absolutely have hurt my feelings, what you have done has gone to the core of who I am, this is a terrible thing and I don't think you understand the history, this hurts me, and you go, I don't care. I yep. don't give a shit. I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah. Monica Lewinsky put out a great um, video this week that um, I think was nominated for an Emmy actually about bullying, and it was it was pretty much that um, you know things that you say online, saying it in real life, and when you see it in a real life context, it just slays you. Mm. It just slays you, and it breaks your heart. The one thing I wanted to talk about in terms of the cartoon is that um, recently I was having a conversation with um, a photographer who does um, often take photos of the football, and we were talking about his concern was that where um, language and nuance around language and the way that we write um, and speak has been changed, and we've seen that reflected in the apology from Josh Caddy this week for some um, disability slurs that he or he used disability slur during the game. Um, where we where community standards have changed in language, we haven't necessarily seen the same thing happen in visual language. And so, as you guys have pointed out, often cartoons and um, caricatures are used to make that really, really quick um, kind of comment. Like a shorthand. Like mm. a shorthand. Mm. And a shorthand is also what people, that's a slur. Like it, you use those bad words and slurs like that as shorthand language and so where language both written and verbal has changed to reflect community standards I don't think we've seen it in visual language and um, the reason why the photographer and I were talking about it is because um, a a few months ago there was a photo of Hannah Mouncey and Orazio Fantasia that was put in the age and you know it was fine and it was what we've often seen but Hannah was sitting on a chair and it was a very odd Thing because Hannah was sitting on a chair and Orazio Fantasia was standing behind her or next to her, and it took he had the a kind of dominant looked like an old portrait of a couple of a yeah. couple it did yeah. and all I could think when I saw it is I know how tall Hannah is mm-hmm. and Hannah would have looked taller than Orazio Fantasia in that photo and for whatever reason it didn't feel like it represented Hannah to me or Orazio Fantasia in fact and so I found it really jarring and so I have been thinking about visual language for a really long time and I guess Mark Knight um, and his caricatures over the last couple of months actually have been demonstrating that that shorthand is offensive and we've also seen that rolling out for Lunig who is you know much loved in Melbourne for such a long time but either his views have changed and community standards have changed and they're not meeting up but also remember the Simpsons and the representation of Apu and the Indian family um so this is um one instance that we've called it it's going to keep happening if caricaturists and um and visual artists think that they um get to have a standalone set of rules it's actually going to be called out time and time again and we're going to have a lot of pushback on this. There was a hideous incident after the football um, on Thursday night, Alicia. On the weekend, after the Richmond Hawthorne qualifying final, two men were caught on camera allegedly assaulting someone 
uh, on camera. It was a horrible incident. The victims were a 45-year-old man and a 61-year-old man and the alleged attackers had beanies on and it's a horrible incident in the name of football and it's a horrible incident in the name of anything but just to see this graphic footage is just so disgusting and it is a blight on the game Uh, however uh, however we see it but this is a horrible thing the fact that they there was a footy beanie in the vision and the fact that there was vision feels like it's branded it's branded football you know it's so branded and you can't move away from that there's no excusing it like Mm. even if you just said these people barracked for this team but they weren't wearing the merchandise it feels like it would have been a very different story Kate yeah I guess the thing that happened after it which is what you're pointing you're both pointing to is that it sort of enabled this discourse to open up where people were saying oh you know typical mm-hmm. um, of this team's supporters or no. typical of that team's mm. supporters, which I find so unproductive and unhelpful yep. um, because those two things are completely separate and, um, you know, whatever, you know, obviously it's before the courts now and we'll see what happens. But just the way that people use it as an opportunity to kind of engage in that tribalism in sport is so disappointing and unproductive. Especially because when it's a violent incident in the community like that, sport plays um, what team you barrack for is not a justification. It's not no, a motivation yes. and no. it's not going to help you get off in court. It's not going to... Mm. The, the, yeah, it bears no relevance. It bears no relevance. But the other the thing that bears no relevance is that um, the attackers um, and the fact that they went to an elite private school in Melbourne, that the name of the school keeps getting mentioned. Yeah. I find it so fascinating, Nicole. Yeah, I, you just know it's only ever when it's an elite private school or even just a private school that the name shows up. I mean, they're 20 and 21, I think, was the age. Clearly no longer students. So the relevance of that, it, there is an actual, a clear bias when it comes to any behaviours that involve anyone from a particular class or a, a presumed class. And you're not you're not a private school devotee no, at all. But public schools. Do you think it's because um, there's this idea that the old school tie gets you a whole lot of positives, so mm. we're also going to use it if there's negatives? So we're le- evening up the ledger. Yeah, he, mm. they, he, they were sons of a Melbourne QC. Mm. I feel like that's maybe relevant. Is that relevant at all to the storytelling? No, I don't think it's relevant at all. I mean, for me, I mean, I take a very strict view of it. I think the key question is whether or not they're guilty and that'll play out in the courts in due course Mm. and and who they're related to or not related to should bear no relevance at all. I think it's just kind of salacious and Mm. juicy and Mm. there's probably a degree of sensationalism involved in it by sort of saying, look, these are... Rich kids or some assumption that they are. Yeah, these alleged attackers are related to a QC and they're related to a former... Um, Australian of the Year, I think he might be. And So my bias in saying that is that I go, they wouldn't have some understanding of what is legally okay to do, but obviously it's already... And morally. Would, morally yeah. and legally they would already know it's not okay to beat someone up, allegedly. I think most of us would know that. <laughs> I would hope. Yeah, I know. So there you go. It's you've just, isn't you've it? just popped my, oh. my bias bubble. <laughs> Thanks for doing that. Um, one thing that was interesting, we did talk about, um, I mentioned Josh Caddy just a moment ago, but Lucy, he's issued an apology. He has. So there was an incident in the game where uh, Josh Caddy used a disability slur and it all stayed very quiet. For, well, you know, there was no um, official word from the club or from the AFL about this. So there's been three instances this year of um, disability slurs, one with Heath Shaw. There was one um, that was via a clip that the AFL used on one of their um, social media platforms and this one with Josh Caddy. And for me, the AFL policy on inclusion and vilification includes um, a 
prohibitation, a prohibiting of using any language that discriminates against people with a disability or um, special needs. And the problem that I have is that that is often treated differently to the way that um, <clears throat> a racist slur mm. or um, something sexist is dealt with. And so what I would really like to see from the AFL is some real clarity about that to come out and articulate that this is actually part of our policy as well. And so we need some education um, into the clubs and to the players that, you know, in the same way that you don't use a racial slur, you don't use a disability slur. Um, what is really great is that Josh Caddy, Josh Caddy came out with what I think was a very good apology mm. that was unequivocal and didn't have any justification. And I think that is a real bonus. And I just want to point people to, um, there are fantastic resources available out there for you if you are uncertain about language what's acceptable I mean I think these ones were clear examples of what's not acceptable but if you are sort of finding your way around the disability space if you check out um, Carly Finlay's um, blog and her website she has some great resources there for people to familiarize themselves. Do you know what I find fascinating is that the discussion um, Josh Caddy dealt with it he apologised. But again, we're aware of this because it was on video and also the umpire's microphones picked it up. Now, the conversations I've heard mm. in the wake have been that the umpire's microphone should be turned off because they do pick up what the players are saying. For me, that feels like gun laws mm. and in America where they make kids take see-through backpacks to school. <laughs> you know, yeah. I feel like it's, hang on a minute, that this we've is got it around the we've got way. it around the wrong mm. way mm. and there's a much easier way to make sure that this doesn't happen again i guess if people didn't say it Okay, the AFLW fixturing and conferencing has been confirmed. Um, we talked about this a little bit on our radio show on the weekend, but um, the but you guys have got in, in touch and you want to know what we think about it. Um, Nicole, do you want to give us the update? Yeah, so the basics of the new fixture will be that there are 10 teams, two divi divided into two conferences of five each. They'll play seven home and away games with two finals and those finals will overlap with round one and round two of the AFL-M. Um, it will start in the first week of February. The idea is the teams play the other four teams from their conference. Plus, there'll be three. They'll play three teams from the other conference in in what's called crossover games, based on a weighted arrangement that's largely drawn on where they've come from before, but also current player arrangements, which are all still very much up in the air. With um, allowance for one rivalry game, as they're calling it. Oh man, I feel like I have to go first because I recently um, went large with this <laughs> and um, and Fiona Lamb who's one of our gorgeous followers said to me on Facebook this week so Emma are you going to tell us that we just have to suck this up and turn up and everything and in short I guess you know getting to the point I guess I am going to say that and um, and the reason why is I've spent the week speaking to stakeholders that is I've spoken to fans I've consulted with players and um, with also people at the AFL and people that were on the competition committee um, and there are some key facts and findings from my discussions which um, I want to um, let you guys know, which is that firstly, there was a real push, um, I believe, from the players that they wanted a finals series. 
which is fair and reasonable, and that has been granted. What I don't think was taken into consideration is that when they were lobbying for a final series, that it was clear that that would come at the detriment of every team playing each other once in the home and away season. So I think that some there has potentially been something lost in communication there that, um, mm. that the players were happy about getting the finals, but they didn't think that it would come at the detriment of playing each other once. That, um, that there is still this concern with the AFL that when they talk about clear air, which I find a very challenging um, kind of conversation piece, is that they're trying to find a place where there's nothing else competing with women's um, footy. Now, the really positive thing is that women's football in this country, AFLW, has in two years, the the professional competition, has really um, kind of hit the same markers and, and is kind of at a similar level in viewing as things like the WBBL, which have had 11 years and, and more um, to kind of find their feet. But there are a lot more people playing in this game because there's more people on AFLW lists. Therefore, it is costing more to put these people on the ground. Um, and we know that there's four more teams coming in next um, 2020. And so um, I think that the conferencing has been because there is a concern that there's a drop-off of people attending and watching the game. And look, I think that there's a lo- there's a multitude of issues with that. Um, and one of those is that if you're going to schedule a game at five o'clock, um, on a Friday afternoon in Blacktown in the middle of a summer storm, you're probably going to struggle to get anyone there, even if it was a Melissa Etheridge concert. So, um, and I think those things are being looked at. But long term, what I think is that the AFL needs to be really clear and have a really clear direction and a five-year plan that is ex- like really um, quite detailed that says this is what we're aiming to do and that it's um, available for fans and stakeholders of all types, I don't think we're going to see something that is really clear and pointed. I think we will see something that's a mission statement or a bold kind of overarching statement of what the long-term plan is, but I think it's going to be really hard to pin down um, really specifics. So, But in answer to Fiona's question the players are turning up every day and going to the gym on their own dime. They're putting in everything they've got, in some cases to the detriment of their careers, you know, outside of footy, that they're not going to uni, that they're not taking other work, that they're putting everything into the gym so that they can turn up and play the best footy that they can play. And the only way, the only way that I see, and I'm frustrated, I'm so frustrated, I'm as as frustrated as anyone, but the only way that we can actually now make a change is by turning up and taking 10 people with us. We need the sheer weight of numbers that walk through the gate at games and put eyes on the game when it's on TV is the only way that we're going to like make any change to attract broadcasters and commercial sponsors and that is what's going to talk. It's the only thing we can do. I think, you know, why why this disappointment kind of is is there is because the AFL really has failed to manage expectations. And I really feel like the AFLW fans didn't really expect the world, but expected some integrity and expected that the and, and by saying that, I mean the integrity of the competition and that they expected that as new teams came in, the competition would grow. And so those expectations haven't really been managed very well. And where I think it's frustrating is, um, you know, sometimes to, to hear that, it, you know, basically it's a part-time competition. 
um, I think doesn't necessarily um, acknowledge that for the athletes, it's not a part-time competition that you, you know, to be an elite athlete for seven weeks or nine weeks or 12 weeks, you need to put in all of the same groundwork and, and that's what they're doing. Um, at the end of the day, I am, am finding it hard to buy the message and I know that it's a big investment, but I really do believe it's worth it. And I believe, as I've said before, that in bringing in other clubs, you actually bring in more people who are stakeholders, who have buy-in automatically just based on, you know, footy colours. And um, I think that that's, that's the job of the AFL. Everybody needs to get behind these teams get their memberships, watch, show up to the games. We really need to demonstrate that there's a market and that there's a demand and that we're not going to be quiet and we're not going to get lazy about this. We can't take it for granted. And doing that, in doing that, if we can double the numbers that have ever been mm. there before, we will buck the trend of women's sport. But Absolutely. if you look at women's sport globally, it, it is it drops off and it's mm. not it's not held as, a, as the marquee part of you know, codes around the world. And that's really, really hard to hear and it's really hard to eat. Don't you reckon? Like yes. it's just so disappointing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's in our hands. But but the uptake of this game by girls, women and girls throughout the country in states and territories that haven't really been gripped by men's AFL is extraordinary. Mm. So we know that, it, that there's a groundswell and it's coming and it's actually our responsibility if we want to create those pathways for those little girls who are playing at the moment to be able to play in a 16-team competition or an 18-team competition by the time, you know, they're 21, then that's actually that's up to us and we can point the finger at commercial sponsors and the AFL. It's actually not going to change anything. The, the only thing that we can do is turn up. That's what I think. One of the most positive things I heard all week was a, a friend did a writing workshop and she said that uh, the teacher who was an older woman said women's sport is not as interesting as men's sport. Men's, men are, more, uh, are stronger and more interesting to watch and all the girls went and wrote beautiful things about how awesome women are in sport. Well, that's the other that's thing. That's the future. That yeah. is the future. And I think that you, you're you so right that um, strength and stamina and, and you know, if we look at the men's game and all of the ways that that's measured, which is, you know, based on advertising revenue and um, bums on seats and all those kinds of things, we need to look at a different way to measure success mm. for the women's competition. And <clears throat> I feel hopeful that there are people inside the AFL trying to work out how to um, come up with new it. ways yeah. to, um, to mm. measure the success of it because we know if it decreases violence against women, if it gets more girls active, if it gets more girls invested in the game, then they're all successes mm -hmm. and they don't look the same as the men's but they've got 150 years on us. Let's just bank on the strength and stamina of the AFLW loving crowd. And the amazing players. Sing it, sister. Make your fridges. Grab 10 other fridges mm. and turn up and watch these games. I had a chat with Professor John Olver, Director of the Rehabilitation, Mental Health and Chronic Pain Clinical Institute and Head of the Epworth Concussion Clinic about the latest developments around concussion. When we caught up, he'd just returned from a conference in the US, so I started out asking him about that. For the last five years, the American Association of Neurologists have organised a sports concussion conference, and this is the second year that I've been, but we were fortunate this year in the Indianapolis conference to be able to uh, 
have three of our therapy staff and another one of the doctors go as well. Right. So it's a, it's a very intense conference uh, highlighting the fact that there's a lot we don't know about concussion. Yeah, that seems to be the, the theme that continues through everything. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to talk to you as much as we can about this, the AFL situation in terms of uh, there are questions that have been raised about how the protocols that, are in these, that currently exist and um, processes and methods of measuring and managing concussion. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think the protocol that um, is, is adopted is the SCAT-5, which is the latest version, and that was upgraded to have some more sophisticated testing and thinking functions. Um, and I think it's quite a good screening tool. We use elements of it further down the track to look at symptoms. But I think however good your tool are, that they're, these guys are elite sportsmen, sportswomen, and the issue is that um, uh, you know their desire to keep on playing, they're not always straight with the symptoms. And one of the things we rely on heavily in our clinic is the patient self-report of the symptom checklist, how severe it is, how it affects them. Uh, and when we look at return to sport, and we don't deal with a lot of AFL because they've got their own systems, but we deal with amateur footballers and particularly schoolboy footballers, it's very much based on symptoms. And uh, uh, you have a graded return to activity, but uh, that grading is based on symptom resolution. And if you say, well, I'm symptom-free, and then you know get another knock and get a severe headache, then you probably weren't symptom-free when you went out. So there's still a lot of self-report that may you know compromise the the result because someone's desire to get back on the team, play the next week, uh, they don't actually um, always tell the truth in terms of they're being affected. Yeah, well, we've actually had players admit as much um, yeah. along the way, and and that is something that's happening is players are becoming a much more open about um, their own experiences, given that there are several high-profile players who are suffering ongoing concerns as a result. But that's often in retrospect, which is a mm. bit sad. It is a bit yeah. sad, and, and kind of self-defeating in many ways, counterproductive anyway. Well, it is, and I think that's because in the past, concussion has been seen as a fairly minor injury, and it is in many ways, but, um, you know, the, the, it can have... 85% uh, of people probably get better in the first two weeks, and we don't see those in our clinic. or well, we do occasionally, but, you know, they're, they're very rapidly through the clinic, but we see the 15% who don't get better in that time, and sometimes their symptoms can go on for months and years, and then often there's a psychological component which can make the symptoms worse as well. Mm -hmm. So those 15% concussion is anything but a minor injury. Is there, is there, could it a case be made for, given that it does seem to be up to two weeks potentially where those um, symptoms can linger, that as a conservative, rather than just simply you don't get to return to the game if you have concussion symptoms, a flat-out two-week uh, break from that sort of play, just as a, a very conservative approach, is that? Well, it would be conservative, but there are some concussive injuries where the symptoms do resolve very quickly. Um, and I know that uh, one of my colleagues in the States who 
is the direct doctor for a ice hockey team. Um, he is very much in favour of getting people back extremely quickly, um, irrespective of some symptoms. Now, most of us don't believe that, but we all believe, I think, now in a quick return to some activity. The old, you know, go to bed until your symptoms are better, that's entirely the wrong sort of treatment. Maybe the first day or two, but then um, part of the symptom improvement is to start getting a bit active. Um, but when you go back to contact and mm. things like that, you've got to really make certain that uh, after that training session you are still symptom free, otherwise you shouldn't be put on. So, I mean, a lot of clubs now are, you know, if you have to be taken off the field, you don't play the next week. The next two would be conservative, mm. but there'd be people that would be well during that time. So. I think that sounds okay, but it, you know, it still needs to be very much individually focused. Right, because we did see with Port Robbie Gray was knocked out and stretched off yes. uh, the game uh, off the ground a couple of weeks ago, and a week later was lining up again. That was actually six days, I think. Yes. That felt like a really kind of uh, felt a bit risky, but it was entirely a layperson point of view. Yeah, no, I think uh, sometimes I, I uh, had the privilege a few years ago of watching a lot of tapes of people with concussion and sometimes it's hard from the incident to judge the severity. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, sometimes it's clear that they have a double strike, one from the blow and the other from their head hitting the ground and that would seem to be worse. But um, from this conference in America, they talked a lot about helmet design for American football and they were very much uh, into, you know, which type of head knock would give the worst concussion, and it's the sort of angular momentum rather than the direct on hit, which seems to do more damage. So they're putting a lot of design into trying to buffer the angular momentum a bit. So it's very interesting that they're getting, you know, down to that sort of level of um, what is worse. Wow, um, is there that sort of level of uh, research being done here in terms of our? Elite sports? Not not so much in terms of the numbers in the in the states of people playing, you know, football and and the research money is a lot greater. So whilst there is clearly research going on here, Americans seem to be able to do it from you know college. They've got uh, statistics stats on um, you know uh, how college footballers go, the number of concussions, etc. And it just sort of swamps our ability to do it mm. in what's a fairly small population comparatively. Uh, some of, I, I believe I was listening to uh, an interview that you did quite recently um, for ben, with Ben Roden oh, yes. on yeah, yeah. Pleasurable Game. Yeah. And you mentioned that the uh, repercussions and the symptoms and concussion manifest quite differently for women and men. Was that, is that how well, it again, was? Well, out of the American conference, there, there was one sort of uh, presentation which did mention um, that there are different reactions to concussion and that uh, perhaps with a similar blow, women don't do as well in terms of longer duration and, and more symptoms. But the paper was a bit vague and need more substantiation, but it does seem that there may be a difference and there needs to be more sort of research in that area. So I think with um, you know AFLW um, becoming more prominent, uh, my colleague has seen three 
women footballers from not the AFLW but league below. One of those would, would have been drafted but is having persisting symptoms so uh, won't be in the draft as a result of that. Um, so again, that was just a paper. There's not a, a lot of evidence but um, it was a suggestion from the conference which we found interesting. It was amazing to talk to John Oliver. He's such a, an incredible, uh, he's doing such incredible work in that space and, and it's a constantly moving beast, this issue of concussion. So, you know, keep listening. There's more more to unfold. Yeah. There was lots of news that came out this week, actually, that we haven't had a chance to cover off because that Mark Knight cartoon's taken up our entire brains, I think. Is that correct? Mm, yeah. I think so. uh, Kate's here. Yeah, one piece of news that we just... Um, need to flag is that Hannah Mouncey announced this week that she would be withdrawing her nomination to play AFLW in part because of the toll that the process took on her. And we talked last week about um, the AFL's gender diversity policy and the toll that the scrutiny can take on on some trans people. So I was really deeply saddened to hear that news. Um, I know at least one person who said that this might just break their relationship with the AFL. Um, mm. which is sad and, and particularly in light of what you were just talking about um, before the interview with John Oliver about the importance of the community getting around AFLW. I I would be sad if people left the game because of that, but also I understand it. Um, but, of course, I know it's a challenging area for the AFL, but I guess it's one that uh, it's, a, it's an important reminder that much is at stake and that there might just be some more work that needs to be done. We did get some really happy news over the weekend. So as we're heading into the Melbourne game, we got this message from one of our listeners, and I'm going to edit it a little bit, but he said, been waiting 12 years for the Ds to make the finals again. I was at Subi for the last final, and it's been a long, long road back. So I was so pumped for tonight. However, doctors have just brought forward my wife's C-section to today. <laughs> We've been bumped to 6pm, yeah, which no. is 10 minutes after the bounce. My no. wife thinks it's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> then two days later, I get an update. Quick update. Baby born 10 minutes before the bounce. Dad missed the game, but doesn't really care. <laughs> so welcome to the world, a new baby girl who's part of the Outer Sanctum podcast family. <laughs> and we're so thrilled for you and your parents. Congratulations. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. We will be back on the radio this weekend um, and then the podcast will be back. But we are in the home straight, ladies. Mm. It's very exciting. But thanks again for joining us on all of our socials. We'll be putting out some of the things that we've spoken about. <laughs> about today so that you can get involved because we love to hear from you and we don't want it to be a one-way conversation. So have a great weekend and go footy! Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.